Welcome to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at the key constitutional and political debates affecting Scotland today. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis, Alex Scholes, and Claire Elliott, we'll be talking about the big issues surrounding Scotland's constitutional future. And today, as well as talking to John about a pretty hectic few weeks in Scottish politics, we'll be taking a look at where we stand going into the 2021 Scottish Parliament election campaign. We'll also have a look at the current balance of opinion on the constitutional question, and we'll discuss the potential impact of Alex Salmond's new pro-independence party on the political landscape in Scotland. So, John, it's obviously been a pretty intense few weeks in Scottish politics for a number of reasons, but... Before we get into some of the detail of, of what's happened over the past month or so, I thought, you know, as we're on the cusp of an election campaign, it might actually be good just to start by kind of taking a bit of a step back uh, and having a look at, at where we are going into that campaign. So so in terms of, of what the polls are telling us, what's the latest that we've got about where party support is ahead of those Holyrood elections in May? Well, I've been quite a lot of polling. Um, uh, none of the polling has taken place since... Alex Salmond um, announced uh, the formation of his party, which we'll come to later on. Um, and indeed, you know, uh, we've not had that much since the height of the row between Ms. Sturgeon and Ms. Salmond and their appearance for the committee. And certainly, again, we don't have very much in the way at all of polling since Mr. Hamilton uh, cleared uh, Nicola Sturgeon of breaking the ministerial code and the parliamentary inquiry was somewhat more critical of her actions. So we don't really know about what's the impact of that, let alone uh, the impact of Mr. Summers' latest manoeuvre. So with all of that in mind, um, the SNP are clearly ahead. They're running on average at 48% on the constituency vote, 41% on the list, so somewhat lower. Um, that's down on where the party was at, certainly at the back end of last year, when it was running above 50% in the polls. Um, but still, given where the other parties are at, about a 50% chance of them being able to get an overall majority. Conservatives are running second, 22% on both ballots on average, but only narrowly ahead of Labour, who are on 20% in the constituencies, 18% on the list. One or two polls are now putting Labour ahead. and looks as though there might be a bit of a battle there for second place, and therefore which is going to be the principal party of unionism. Liberal Democrats, 7%, both ballots, still really stuck in the same pit that the party's been stuck in for most of the time since uh, uh, the 2011 election. Um, and the Greens, about 9%, which if they were to manage to get on the list vote, um, uh, would probably see them uh, increase their representation in the Holyrood Parliament. And uh, that's clearly something that they're quite keen to do. So. In one sense, we're looking at an election which looks extraordinarily boring in the sense <laughs> that it seems to be virtually inconceivable that any party other than the SNP will actually manage to win it. But that said, given that there now seems to be widespread acceptance, including implicitly by the UK Prime Minister himself, that it might make a difference if the SNP get an overall majority on their own, mm. as opposed to whether they're reliant on the Greens or indeed Mr Salmond. Um, because if they do manage to achieve that target, 
then they will be able to argue that the precedent of 2011, when they got an overall majority, should apply because that election then led to the 2014 independence referendum. You know, on that, it, this election looks very, very close indeed at the moment. And meanwhile, we do potentially have this interesting battle uh, for second place between the Conservatives and Labour. At the moment, the Conservatives are clearly the principal voice of uh, unionism in Scotland in contrast to position before the 2014 independence referendum. Um, you know, not only are they in government at, in London, but also uh, they are the, the leaders of the opposition in Holyrood. If they lose that latter position, then the complications of coming up with a united voice for unionism, which are clearly quite substantial, uh, certainly will not uh, be made any easier. So I just wanted to pick up on, on something that you said earlier on there, actually. Now, we know that the SNP are on course to be the largest party come May, right? And, and that's been the case for some time. But you mentioned that we might actually have seen a bit of a dip in SNP support, you know, more recently and, and kind of especially maybe since the beginning of the year. And so I wonder whether we might have seen a kind of similar drop in support for yes over the past few months or so as well. Or, you know, is, is that looking a bit more stable? Well, support, I mean, take the last half dozen polls or so, and it's literally yes, 50, no 50. The country's absolutely divided down the middle. Now, that is lower, certainly than it was last year, though it's not clear that it's dropped in the wake of the appearances by Mr. Salmond and Ms. Sturgeon before the parliamentary inquiry, because certainly um, on one reading, at least of the polling data for January, limited though it was, support for independence was already running at around the 50% mark there. In other words, the support, the decline in support of independence may have predated the um, Salmon Sturgeon row becoming uh, front page uh, news and dominating the broadcasting coverage uh, north of the border. But certainly, whatever one's view on that, it's certainly clear that support for independence, which was running at around 53-54% for much of uh, the second half of last year, is lower than it was. But it's still basically running at the level that it was at when the UK left the European Union at the end of January 2020. And, and the rise in support for independence off the back of Brexit that we've written about regularly on, on what Scotland thinks, uh, that's still very much there. Uh, 56% of those people who voted remain in 2016, so they would vote yes, only 34% of leavers. Um, and therefore, as it were, the, what perhaps was always the more permanent underpinning of uh, the rise in support for independence, which is you know, the pursuit of Brexit, now, the impact of that is still very, very much there. What may well have been diminished, and as it were, the alternative explanation uh, as to why support for independence has waned to a degree, is that the rise in support uh, last year seemed to be tied to perceptions, very um, generous perceptions of how the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon had handled the pandemic, um, in the wake of which some polling was suggesting that 20% of those people who voted no in 2014 felt that perhaps Scotland might have handled the pandemic better as an independent country, and some of those may well, as a result, have switched in favour of yes. Whereas virtually nobody on the nose who voted no, uh, yes in 2014 felt that Scotland would have handled things worse. Now, more recent polling suggests that gap has narrowed. Uh, we've now got 16% of people saying that um, uh, Scotland would have handled the pandemic better as an independent country who are amongst no voters. 
And meanwhile, there's now a little body of about 9% of yes voters who say, well, actually, maybe I'm not quite sure we would. Some of that, of course, may be to do with the vaccine rollout. Uh, but insofar as the rise to 53% did seem to be contingent on those perceptions of the pandemic, those perceptions perhaps not working quite so much in that direction as they were. And that perhaps is an alternative explanation as to why support for independence is somewhat lower uh, now than uh, the excitement and coverage of the, the row between uh, Ms Sturgeon and Mr Salmond. So I suppose the fact then that we've we've kind of seen a, a bit of a concurrent dip in support both you know for the SNP and, and also support for yes you know that that actually kind of points towards this phenomenon that I suppose we've seen growing in strength over the, the past couple of years which is you know, essentially both support for the SNP and support for independence are kind of increasingly tied quite tightly together. But another thing we've we've spoken about before is this kind of potential, you know, ongoing impact of, of Brexit as well in terms of structuring party support over, over the past couple of years. And if on top of all of that, you throw in the impact of, of the pandemic into that mix, I wonder if, you know, maybe are we, are we looking at a kind of different dynamic going into this election compared with, you know, the, the run-up to, say, the 2016 election? Yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial to appreciate um, as we all get beguiled by the excitement of the campaign and Salmon versus Sturgeon, etc., that we are looking at an election where the structure of party support, by which I mean, you know, who are the kinds of people who are willing to vote for the SNP and who isn't, Those, that structure is different from even the 2016 Scottish Party election, let alone the 2011 one. And that is true in two ways. The first is that Brexit, it does now make a difference to who is willing to vote for the SNP in much as the same way as I've already said, it makes a difference to who is willing to vote yes for independence. So I'd give you uh, some idea, take the average of the recent polls, um, the SNP is running at 55% amongst those who voted remain, only 31% of those who, who voted leave, very similar to the figures for independence. But crucially, that uh, level of support amongst remain voters is eight points up on what the SNP secured in 2016 amongst remain voters, and whereas the level amongst leave voters is 13 points lower. If you go back to 2016, which we always have to remind ourselves, took place seven weeks before the Brexit referendum, it's prehistory, uh, cephalogically. You know, on that occasion, the, you know, the SNP were doing almost as well amongst leave, those who went on to vote leave as amongst those who vote remain. That's very different. And therefore, Brexit is undoubtedly a, still an issue, given also particularly within the unionist camp, you know, the Conservatives are very, very dependent on leave voters, 46% of Leave voters say they're going to vote for the Conservatives. In contrast, only 16% of them say they're going to vote for Labour Party. Um, meanwhile, the Labour Party is actually ahead, although only narrowly ahead, by about 20 points to 14 uh, amongst uh, those who voted Remain. So Brexit you know, divides the unionist movement. But again, also, you can see how it means the Conservatives are very much involved in, in pursuing the niche market of pro-union Leave voters uh, north uh, uh, of the border. The second way, however, that things are different, and you know, this might surprise some people. You might think, well, of course, the people who vote for the SNP are the people in favour of independence and vice versa. Well, actually, this has far from always been the case. Go back to the 2011 election, when the SNP got an overall majority, then nearly 40% of, 
those people who at that point in time were wanted devolution rather than independence voted for the SNP. They thought the SNP might be able to run the devolved institutions more effectively uh, than, than the then principal opposition party Labour. Um, even in 2016, just over one in five of those people who at that stage were in favour of uh, independence voted for the SNP. Now the figure is just 7%. Conversely, 87% of yes voters say they're going to vote uh, uh, for the SNP. So we have to bear in mind, for example, that when we're speculating about what the campaign, the effect of the campaign might be, um, that you know we do really seem to be looking at two very different camps. So um, given the way in which independence is structuring things, the ability, for example, of Mr. Salmon to appeal to non-independence voters seems to be quite limited, but equally also the ability of the unionist parties to get votes off the SNP by attacking the government's record, uh, again, would seem to be limited unless they really can persuade yes voters that despite their support for independence, they shouldn't be uh, voting for the SNP because of their record in government. And it does suggest that independence is going to be difficult to avoid. And I think it certainly has been very striking in the um, speech that Nicola Sturgeon has given just earlier on the day that we're recording on, on Monday before Easter, um, that the central theme of her speech was indeed that Scotland should become an independent country. Now, if you were to go back to the SNP campaign in 2007 or indeed in 2011, independence was not the principal brand that the party was offering. It is now a party that's much more confident seemingly in thinking that its uh, argument best lies in saying that uh, uh, this is a, an election campaign on about independence. And to that extent, at least, we are looking at a quasi-referendum. Um, some parties may not want a referendum, but the voters look as though they're minded to turn this election into one anyway. So, John, you've painted a really detailed picture there of where we are in terms of, you know, the overall pattern of party support. But actually we can't really avoid talking about the impact of the events of the past few weeks on that kind of, you know, overarching picture. And Claire's with us today who has actually got a few questions about what events we're alluding to here and also what kind of effect they might actually have over the next few months. Hiya, Claire. Hi, both. Great to be on the podcast again, especially as this unusual election season kicks off. So, so far, we've sort of circled around Alex Salmond and the surprising events of Friday, which have the potential to be bit of a bombshell in all of this. For people who are maybe unaware of Alex Salmon's newly launched Alaba party, could you give us an overview of what happened and who they are? Yeah, um, well, what happened uh, last Friday is that Mr. Salmon took on a party that had actually already been created a couple of months earlier called uh, Alba or Haluba in my poor Gaelic. Um, that um, uh, and in so doing uh, got the support of certainly a couple of um, SMP MPs, including Kenny McCaskill, the former Justice Minister, when Mr. Salmond was uh, uh, First Minister, um, and one or two other people who were going to stand for the SNP as candidates. And indeed, he's now also got the support of Tommy Sheridan, uh, the former leader of SSP, the Scottish Socialist Party, and, and then a Solidarity. Um, 
behind this, I think, you know, those who have been, as it were, willing to bat for Mr. Salmon do, during the various arguments about his treatment by the Scottish government, et cetera, et cetera. One of the key motivations has been that they feel that Nicola Sturgeon has not been pursuing the issue of uh, independence with the same degree of zeal and ardor that they would like to see. They feel that at the end of the day, and they would cite here the experience of what happened in 2017 when Nicola uh, Sturgeon got the Scottish Parliament to vote to ask for a Section 30 order, then lost some seats in the election, was told by Theresa May, now is not the time, and basically put things on ice. They, they've got this feeling that maybe Nicola Sturgeon is more interested in being First Minister of Scotland than leading Scotland um, in, in, into independence, and is, and is too timid, is not willing to take uh, enough risks. Um, so they're looking, as it were, to add strength to Miss Sturgeon's elbow, um, and, and these are also the, the folk who have been, uh, at least among the folk who have long been advocating that the SNP should be made clear what it's, make clear what its so-called plan B should be, that is what it's going to do if there isn't a uh, agreement by the UK government to grant the Section 30 order that would pave the way for a referendum of the kind that was held in 2014. Now, the SNP have given some indication about this, but I think, frankly, they don't want to talk too much about it. Um, it's pretty clear, I think, that Mr. Salmond and his colleagues do. Beyond this, I mean, beyond this, um, there is um, some indication that perhaps the party may not be quite so keen on linking independence to the idea of, uh, of, of rejoining the European Union, but we'll wait and see. It's interesting, certainly, Mr. Salmond seems to be a little bit more popular amongst the, the more leave inclined end of the leave the nationalist community. Um, and that perhaps would fit the fact that, you know, the other issue that has undoubtedly um, exercised some of those who are linked with Mr. Salmond is the debate about trans, transgender rights and particularly the rights of trans women um, and the fact that the Scottish government is minded to say that anybody who has uh, transitioned uh, should be able to declare that they're transitioned and not need any certification from a from a doctor or anybody else. And that then raises the question as to whether or not they should have that be treated as women for, for various um, uh, discriminatory practices, employment practices, and also the sensitive issue of access to uh, female spaces like toilets. And this, you know, has been also become quite a serious row within uh, the SNP. Um, and, you know, it may be that there's an indication that uh, Mr. Salmon is also going to appeal to the slightly more socially conservative end of uh, the nationalist community. But I mean, these are the issues so far, at least, that seems to be uh, central to this. But I think, you know, above all, this is the group of people who feel that we need to toughen up Miss Sturgeon's stance and why perhaps they feel that having more pro-independence MSPs is more important than the SNP having an overall majority on its own. Indeed, maybe it's even true that they wouldn't be unhappy if the SNP don't have a majority on their own, because then in pursuing independence, perhaps Ms Sturgeon would have to take notice of the Alba party. Excellent, thank you. So what, what can we expect out of this party? I know there's probably been very little polling on it since Friday, but what kind of impact do you see it having on the SNP vote 
the results at Holyrood more generally and beyond? Well, we've certainly not had any polling on this. I think the po early polling on this will be interesting. I think Mr. Salmond really will need some polls that suggest he's actually a serious competitor. He's get, he has a chance of getting above the 6% of the vote or so that's needed for you starting to pick up list seats. If it looks as though he's only getting two, three, four percent, then the sale may uh, go out of the winds of this enterprise as quickly as it was blown into it with his uh, uh, revelation that he was standing uh, last uh, uh, standing last Friday. Um, now, in the absence of any polling on this, the best that we can do, and there's a few assumptions here, is to look at Mr. Salmon's personal popularity because I think you know, yes, he's acquired some former SNP activists and candidates to stand for him. That provides him with a bit of resource, but um, he's not going to be as well funded as the SNP. He's not going to have the same organizational base as the SNP. So, you know, it will, I think, be very much dependent on Mr. Salmon's ability to make waves in the election and will be very much tied up with people's views about Mr. Salmon as personality and his suitability. Uh, for being elected as a politician again. And the problem that Mr. Salmon faces, if indeed that is the crucial criterion, is that he isn't very popular. Um, two polls have asked him how favorably or unfavorably they think of Mr. Salmon. Only 14% of voters as a whole uh, say they think of him favorably. Amongst SNP voters, that figure jumps up to about 16%. Um, Whereas, you know, Miss Sturgeon, it's 90% plus of SNP voters who say they think favorably of her. So you can see the battle he's got uh, within, potentially within the court of public opinion. That said, if indeed Mr. Salmon could persuade around one in six of those who at the moment say they're going to vote for the SNP and might perhaps vote for the SNP on the list ballot to vote for him, that, you know, would take him to about 7% of the vote and would potentially take him past the 6% uh, barrier that he probably needs in order to get representation. So I don't think we should entirely discount his ability, um, uh, ability of his party at least to pick up a few seats. Certainly wouldn't discount his personal ability to do so, although as it, uh, you know, as it happens, the Northeast is perhaps the area where support for the SNP might, even without Mr. Salmon's presence, be full back relatively speaking, because it is such a pro relatively pro-Brexit part of Scotland. Um, but, um, you know, don't, we can't dismiss his prospects, but uh, given the PR system, but uh, he's certainly, I think, going to have to establish the credibility of his party pretty early on in the campaign, if he's going to maintain the kind of momentum, continue to receive the kind of media attention upon which I think he'll be heavily dependent. So you've kind of mentioned a bit about this when you've been discussing the list seats. Um, a lot of this debate has to do with the Scottish electoral system and can sometimes involve some confusing calculations. Could you tell us a bit about Scotland's voting system and how Alex Salmond's party hopes to game it? Yeah, well, we I mentioned earlier about, you know, the, where the party stood on the constituency vote and stood on the list vote. We have an electoral system which has, has two linked parts. Part one is the constituency system. We have 73 MSPs who are elected to the parliament in single member constituencies using the first past the post system with which Scotland has long been familiar and is still used for elections to the House of Commons. Um, but we have a second part. The second part is uh, a list system, uh, which is uh, undertaken within 11 separate regions of Scotland. 
um, and voters have a separate vote for the list system and they're not obliged to vote for the same party on the list as they are on the constituencies. But the two, the two parts are interlinked when it comes to the allocation of seats. So basically what happens is we first of all work out who's won each of the individual constituencies. And that gives us a tally of the total number of constituency seats that each party has won within each of the eight regions. What we then, that, but the allocation then of the list seats, they are they're not simply allocated in proportion to the share of the list vote that the parties get, but rather they're allocated so that the share of both the constituency seats and the list seats that the party have is proportional to the list vote. In other words, the constituency seats that a party has gained count against its entitlement that is worked out as part of the list vote calculation. That therefore means that if a party does very, very well in the constituencies, it might find that it's done so well that it's already got its entitlement. Indeed, sometimes it can get more than its entitlement. And that was the position in which the SNP found itself in six of the eight regions in 2016. So although the party was well ahead on the list vote, it still in each of these regions did not get any list MSPs. And so the logic that Mr. Salmon is pursuing, I mean, in fact, it's a way of trying to game the system. And people have been thinking of ways of how to game the system, frankly, ever since the first Scottish Parliament election of 1999, but now this is the first serious attempt to do it. You're trying to game the system by trying to say to people, look, I know you like the SNP, I know you're in favour of independence, but we would we want you to vote for the SNP on the constituency vote, but don't vote for them on the, on the list. It's going to be a waste of your vote if you vote for us because we are not standing in the constituencies. And that's what Alex Salmond is, is, is doing. He's not standing in the constituencies. Um, if we, uh, we're not standing constituency, so any votes you cast for us on the list vote do have a chance to pick up list seats, irrespective of how well the SNP do in the constituencies. So that all sounds fine and dandy, until you remember that, of course, there are those two regions in which the uh, SNP did pick up a list seat last time. Highlands and Islands, they pick up one in the south of Scotland, which is Scotland, the SNP's weakest region because it's the most pro-union part of the country. Um, they actually picked up three list seats. And the crucial thing then to realise, if you take where we are at in the polls, they said earlier, there's about a 50% chance of the SNP getting overall majority. Well, if they're going to get that overall majority, uh, the calculations suggest they might need two or three list seats across those two regions to get past the threshold. So although it looks as though Mr. Salmond is going to boost the independence movement, and certainly if he does get representation, other things being equal, he's more likely to take vote seats, if not votes, off the Conservatives and Labour Party because they're dependent on the list of part of the election for getting seats, although he could potentially take some votes and perhaps some seats of the Greens. So therefore, it's not all necessarily an addition to the pro-independence tally. But in a pursuing that strategy, he might conceivably put at risk the SNP's ability to win an overall majority. And as we explained earlier, that's not necessarily a prospect to which the SNP would look with equanimity, 
but perhaps is also one of the objectives that Mr. Salmond is actually pursuing. Before we go, we'd like to say thank you to the ESRC and especially their UK in a change in Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes. So please do head over to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatscotlandthinks.org. And finally, thanks to John, thank you to Claire, and goodbye from all of us.